Smart Council is a production of New Pattern Counseling, with additional support from Multnomah University. To learn how to support this podcast, visit patreon.com slash smartcouncil. Reese Basimio is a counselor, teacher, and writer, and the founder of New Pattern Counseling in Gresham, Oregon. His clinical specialties are addictions, gender, sexuality, and spirituality. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another episode of Smart Council. This episode is one of a series of lectures that I delivered in a class setting. The class was an introduction to addictions, and the context was a master's in counseling program at a Protestant university. Given this context, the episodes are longer, live, and a bit more organic than normal. You may hear gaps in conversation. These represent where I paused to interact with a student question. Otherwise, uh, this is me having the most fun public speaking that I can imagine. Uh, So thanks again for listening, and let's keep the conversation going. All right, here we go. Welcome back to uh, COU 655 at the Master's in Counseling program at Multnomah University. I am Reese Basimio, your host and instructor for today's Merry Adventures in Theories on Addiction. Um, We've been talking about uh, what addiction is uh, before we try to endeavor to understand how to uh, help treat it or help people work through it. And uh, and again, um, why is this important? Thoughts have consequences. Our thoughts determine our lives. The the way that we see a person uh, dramatically affects how we interact with them. So as as we've seen, if you uh, say say you uh, adhere to a more like, a moral model or what can be the, the 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 moral model of addiction, where you assume that it's a person's choice, that something's wrong with them, that they're deviant in some way, uh, then you that lays the framework for things like criminalizing drugs and criminalizing addiction and what we've seen in the war on drugs where the the addicted person now becomes the enemy to be punished rather than what you might see in more the the medical model the disease model where the addicted person is sick and they need help and they need treatment and uh, and even that one uh, which is quite a, quite an improvement it can still look and say uh, like all, all it can all, all we want to do is see, ju- just stop using drugs. Just, just stop using the drugs, and then everything will be fine. Uh, and that doesn't fully factor in, well, why did the person start using drugs in the first place? And they're, they're not necessarily just inherently broken, but maybe they've been through uh, a whole lot of, a whole lot of uh, painful things, uh, which uh, still, still, still next time we're going to talk more in depth about the, the, the trauma model of addiction, where it, 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 assume, it assumes trauma, it assumes... And we'll look at the the adverse childhood experiences or the ACE quiz. It assumes that a person's had a few of those and now is coping with them in some way. And and as we'll see, ideally, a good course of treatment will mean not just getting a person to stop acting out in whatever way, but also saying, hey, let's help you also build a better life for yourself, uh, have better relationships, a reason not to use, or some way that uh, life sober is better than life intoxicated. That would be the idea. So today we are continuing our survey of some different models. So the the models so far, um, they've been they've been um, 
I've started with the models that I don't like and I'm moving more into the models that I do like. So that's, that's the order we're going in. So by now, now we're getting into the models where I think there's more, more to offer. There, there, there's more good than not in, in the models going forward. And they all have like a couple corners where we could fine tune things, but that's okay. So we mentioned the sociocultural model, which says that addiction and compulsory behavior, it comes out, it comes out of the societal approaches, societal attitudes around stuff, or a person is very much impacted by their society and, um, you know, the, the cultural attitudes toward people and the pain and everything, they, they, they all matter. And uh, so, so, we, so we mentioned that one. Uh, so move, moving into, so we'll talk about family systems for a little bit, um, which is the other, the other uh, one of the other ones that begins to factor in context, this one, the family context. Um, when we talk about, uh, when we talk about some interventions, I want to talk a lot about uh, Cartman's triangle, and that's, that's the triangle. So, so you see in the, in the center triangle, that's, um, that's the, the triangle of family dysfunction, um, common roles people fall into, they fall into the, the role of the aggressor, the persecutor, which I spelled wrong, uh, or offender, uh, or the, the victim, the martyr, the scapegoat, or down at the bottom, the, the rescuer, the enabler, the, the guardian person. And uh, families tend to triangulate throughout that. You might have like, you know, a parent at one corner, another parent at another corner, and like a kid at the other one. Uh, and they just, they share stress around in a really dysfunctional sort of way. Uh, and then we'll see that there's a counter triangle to that that begins with empathy, taking responsibility and ownership for your stuff, your journey, your impact on others, your boundaries that can lead to safely negotiating specifics in logistics, finding opportunities for interacting in better ways, and then having a vision for long term plans for your family. Um, uh, I'm excited to talk about that when we get to talking about some interventions. Um, all that to say, though, uh, there is a very real way that addiction is a family affair. And uh, and again, people don't addict for no reason. And um, uh, sad to say, our families often provide us many reasons why we might like to cope or escape or um, not be healthy. So the, the, the family systems model, or sometimes called the general systems model, uh, this one says that Individual behavior can only be properly understood in the context of the group or the community or the family influences uh, acting upon the person. Uh, in this model, the, the problem is dysfunction within the family system, um, particularly, and that we looking at that triangle, particularly dysfunctional means of managing stress and conflict. Um, and the, in, in, the, in that systems model, it's all about anxiety and saying there, there's anxiety and there's tension and we have to manage it some way. And so typically you'll have like a dyad who they're, they're at odds with each other. And then rather than working out their conflict, they'll triangulate and divert the stress into another party. And then someone might come in and rescue that party or something and or this party will react and then aggress somebody else. And so that just creates uh, chaos and drama. And there's actually a way we can be addicted to our own chaos and drama also. Um, there's a, I'll have to find it. There, there's another XY graph that talks about uh, families as being on a spectrum of, what is it, uh, enmeshed or disengaged, or like overly connected to overly disconnected, as well as uh, overly rigid or overly chaotic. 
uh, and families float around that quadrant in a way. And so uh, what we find is that um, when a family system is tending toward rigid and tending toward disengaged, you have high structure, low connection, uh, that tends to be a breeding ground for, for a lot of addiction. Uh, similarly to like chaotic disengaged, there's like a lot of, uh, uh, also a lot of disconnection and, and no structure and that can, that can also be good. Um, well, granted, I mean, I mean, like you can, there's dysfunction in all, all of the corners taken to an extreme, but, uh, we, we notice like rigid, uh, I think is rigidly disengaged in particular, um, uh, is, um, a that's for, for us who work in Christian circles, we've got to be aware of that coming out of a lot of, uh, church settings where there's a really, really high emphasis placed on authority and authoritarian structures, uh, without intimacy, without nurture, without connection. Uh, something about that combination is just a, a breeding ground for, for compulsive behaviors. So, uh, keep that in mind. Within this model, uh, just a quick question if I may. Quick, yes. Quick. I was going to ask, um, just visualizing the XY graph or whatever, I was also kind of thinking of like a pendulum. Would I be correct in assuming that like um, addiction is more common on the um, on the fringes of the pendulum? Like either way you go, like hyper-controlling or like hyper-chaos, um, it seems to me that like either one would be just as likely. Or do you find that controlling is uh, more likely than chaos? Um, I think, so if I'm hearing the question right, um, it'll be on the extremes of those spectrums that you're going to see the most dysfunction. Does that answer the question? A little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ex- yeah. E- extreme perspectives and extreme extreme variations uh, or or imbalances. So those are going to cause cause the most challenges. So one of the one of the reasons family systems is really important is because of uh, it's because of the 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 the, go, the send the kid away to inpatient send send the kid to rehab phenomenon where you know we might identify hey here's the kid or here's the dad or here's the mom or here's like the crazy aunt who's like acting out in all of these addictive ways and might say okay you know you're the problem you go to rehab um you know we'll turn to the rehab people and say hey fix my person uh you know we'll slough off responsibility that way uh and then you know 30 60 90 days whenever insurance runs out uh the the person comes back uh, and nothing has changed in the system and so maybe the person has learned all of these things. They've had all of these epiphanies. They've had these this mountaintop experience, this this spiritual experience. They've gotten the the summer camp T-shirt, uh, and then they wait. Are we talking rehab or summer camp? Um, I, I can't remember. I, I wasn't going to say anything earlier, but I really <laughs> really wanted to bring up summer camp, just like like church camps uh, are especially just like a cesspool for that kind of thing. It happens. It happens a lot. There's there's this whole idea, um, and it's and I don't. It's there's this whole idea like you 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 go away, you have this great experience, you learn all of these things, uh, and then you have to go back into your system. And if you don't have adequate resources or adequate gumption or adequate resiliency or adequate support or adequate connection or community or accountability, what tends to happen is you get integrated and assimilated back into the system, into the role you had before which can often mean relapsing back to whoever you were before. And thus, what we notice is that in a system, if you only change one member of the system, nothing really changes. And so if you want to, so, so this model would say, if you want to make changes, if you want to really treat addiction, you have to treat the family or you have to treat the, the, the system. Um, and we can say, you know, um, 
household or whoever you're living with. And if you're like working with an adult person, it could be there uh, with an adult. It might not with a kid. It might be their fit their their family of origin. With an adult, it could be their family of origin. It could be more just like their household who they live with. You know, either way. Um, but yeah, so we'll say. Addiction is caused by the larger social systems that surround the individual. The person is but a single cell in an organism perpetually struggling to maintain homeostasis. Homeostasis is a very important concept to think about. Uh, pros of this model. Uh, I like this because it promotes systemic change by incorporating holistic context, the, whole, the, whole, the person's whole context, and addressing underlying patterns of relating, attaching, and resolving conflict. Uh, if you can relate well to people, attach well with people, and resolve conflict in a pretty meaningful way, you're probably good, and you can probably put up with a lot of life, and you'll probably be more healthy than, than a lot of people. Uh, you look at people's patterns of relationship dysfunction, it probably has something to do with they have a hard time relating, a hard time attaching and bonding, and a hard time resolving conflict in, in, a, in a sophisticated adult way. And so faced with stress from any of these, we might say, hey, I'd rather drink or smoke or look at porn or do something to escape the stress. Um, so looking at the whole context and teaching the whole context these new ways is a really good approach. Uh, the cons, so there, there, are some, uh, there, there are some challenges to this one. One is just about logistics. It's very difficult to work with a whole family. Well, kind of, sort of. Like once you get a whole family into a room together, you know, if you, if you, if you can put up with that sort of energy, it could be kind of fun because there's all there's all the moving pieces are there and you get caught up in that and I don't know if if you like it it's cool. <laughs> so I do remember. So so I think when I when I started my counseling program I had this thought of like hey I think I might like to work with youth because I did that in my Protestant days uh, and uh, I was like kind of conceding to be like okay if I'm gonna work with the youth I know I need to work with the family okay cool and so then. I got to I got to my my marriage and family systems class in, in college and we did role plays and it, and I hated it. I just couldn't I couldn't get it it was so stressful for me to try to work with like here's here's parents and here's kids and here's little kids and here's all of this stuff and there's just so many pieces to juggle and I was like ah I can't do it. Um you know, oddly enough like like process group like group counseling I, I love that and I, and I always have but for like the family the idea of family therapy just was so jarring and I was like no no let me stay away I, I don't do couples I don't do families I don't do any of that um so that was that was, that was me about 10 years ago um so then I get into the addictions world and as I start getting deeper and deeper into it I start realizing like oh, I gotta work with the families oh. so uh so I'm kind of back to now working with families um which I originally didn't want to do but I don't know. I'm 10 years older. I've learned some tools. It's a little bit fun. A little bit. It's also super necessary. You, yes. Sure. Can you work with the family through an individual? So if the family is either unable or unwilling to be a part of the process, like how efficacious is it to work with the family through the individual? Yeah. So um, with that, I believe that, um, and someone who actually specializes in family systems, feel free to correct me, but I believe that uh, you'd you'd have your identified patient, your your identified person, and uh, and like the, and especially for for insurance purposes, like the treatment plan would be, be written for and about the identified person, uh, and they might be they might get the, like the most attention, but you would definitely want to have, you know, a family group or, or a couples group or or a parent night or something because that's that that's important. Um, I mean, I, I mean, I would say, I mean, better to treat the individual than to not treat the individual. But um, again, depending on how closely 
the connected they are with their family, um, you know, to to not factor in the family is borderline a, a waste of time, and and maybe may, you could maybe even argue that it, that is kind of negligent. Um, that that could go for like if you're working with a kid and not trying to factor in the family, that would definitely be definitely be the case. Uh, if you're working for a person who has a partner, uh, especially if you once you get into the realm of like like sexual addiction sex and porn addiction, where there's pretty frequently some component of infidelity, betrayal, trauma. Um, like if you're not trying to coordinate with the partner, the partner's therapist, the partner should have a therapist, you're, you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot and not, and ultimately not doing, not doing the person any, any long-term good. Cause, cause again, you know, you work with one member of a system, you can change, you can help that one member of the system, but it won't be, they won't be able to sustain it most likely unless they, are just like really, really, really sure of themselves uh, or have a lot of other resources. Uh, similarly too, when you're working with a couple where there's been betrayal trauma or infidelity, it's, 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 a, it's a sad deal. Like it's, there, there's the acting out partner who's, who's, who's done the cheating, who's done the betrayal. They typically get all of the attention and they typically get all of the support. And very sadly, it's often the, the partner, especially if she's a woman who gets blamed for, for her husband, her partner's acting out. And so, um, she typically gets some variation of no care or she gets blamed, which is completely terrible. I'll, uh, I'll somewhere work in, I'll post on the, on the canvas, some other resources around how to support partners. But, but yeah, if you're only working w- with one person and not even trying to coordinate with, with the other person and, and their care team, it's negligence and very bad. So um, with this though, so factoring in the system. So one of the main challenges you'll run into though, is that it's a system, it's an ecosystem. It wants to maintain homeostasis. It wants to preserve its semblance of normal. It wants things to stay the same, um, which can be very bad if that same is toxic. Uh, and so, uh, one of the major difficulties is, is getting the other people, the other members, into treatment uh, again because there, there's this urge to, to scapegoat the, the acting out person and say it's their problem it's not me they've hurt me like why should i have to show up in therapy um and there's there's this whole long process to you know to talk about it um one of the metaphors i think most useful for like especially if you're talking with a betrayed partner you know they'll be like you know it was his fault and he messed up my life and like why should i come to therapy and like i don't even want to go to therapy and i'll be like well yeah, it's true. It's not at all your fault that he did what he did to you. Um, but let's look at it this way. He stabbed you in the back multiple times. It's uh, definitely his responsibility to stop stabbing you in the back, but you've got a stab wound, several. Um, you, do you really want to patch those up all by yourself or be responsible for that? Um, you, you should have some help, someone to nurture you and help walk you through that. Uh, you shouldn't be alone in this, that sort of thing. So that's important clinical implications, like we talked about, we need to be coordinating with the other family members and their providers, and ideally they have providers, and of course finances and insurance become quite a, quite a bit of a mess in this one, but we'll try anyway. Spiritual integration points to consider. Uh, so there are the dynamics, you know, you, you know, in the, the Old Testament, especially there's, there's this language around the sins of the father are visited to the third and fourth generation, and uh, when we look at like genetics and epigenetics, we see there's some uh, DNA basis for that. You know, the things that that I do, my you know my attitudes, my anxieties, my acting out patterns, 
um, those have an effect on on my offspring and what they do carrying forward what I'm doing will have an impact on their offspring and on and on and on, um, which goes for both, again, um, acting out behaviors as well as recovery behaviors. Um, what you do for growth and resilience and spiritual growth, that, that also carries forward. Um, so there is that way that like the, the whole family is affected by the things that you do. Uh, there's also a very hopefully, uh, on a more hopeful note, um, the way that families also grow together. So here I'll, I'll think of um, one, one example in the New Testament is uh, you know Saint Cornelius. Um, he was he was a he was a Gentile who he had the vision of Peter coming to visit him and bringing the gospel, and that was where Peter also had the vision of the you know, pigs in a blanket. Or that's 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 the biblical reference to hot dogs. It's, it's the pigs in the blanket, the animals all in the uh, the sheet. Um, <clears throat> um, but that was where that was you know that was when the Gentiles were beginning to be brought into the church, glory to God. Uh, but, but in that, um, it was Cornelius who was saved and all of his household. It was a household decision. And I think later the, the jailer in Philippi, it was a similar deal where it was, it was one person and all of their household were all, all saved, all converted together. And so there is that way too that, um, you know, just as uh, the, 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 the sins, the acting out, the, 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 compulsions of, of one person affect everyone so too the the recovery the resilience the the salvific process of one person can also have an impact on everyone as well so that is what we will say about that and i want to come back again to cartman's triangle probably in a future lecture because it's just super cool and super fun okay so remembering again um the uh, the four corners of addiction we talked about before uh different things to think about you know something's wrong with the person uh, something's wrong with the substance itself, uh, something's wrong with uh, the environment in which everything is happening, and and now uh, here we are, part four, corner four, uh, something is wrong with the person's relationship to the thing. Um, and um, I'll make the case, or I'll make the point, uh, and we'll talk about this more when we talk about addiction interaction. Um, but there's almost a way that the, the object of obsession, the, the thing the person is doing to act out, uh, almost doesn't matter I mean, it matters, but what matters far, far, far more is why they're doing it. Um, because the reality is a person could act out with anything. You know, someone who starts off with alcohol, they could end up with cannabis, they could end up with gambling, with food, with sex, with um, obsessive exercise, um, with like super empty ritualistic religion. Um, you know, they, 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 they can shift their, their obsession and compulsion to a whole variety of things all coming from the same addictive mechanism. And so it's, it's that, that mechanism, that, that reason why you're doing things, that, um, that becomes really important. Um, I mean, down to like, you know, uh, and, and I think when, when we think about it this way, that um, the, 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 the addiction is not what I do, but why I do it. And if I'm doing something in, in an addictive and a compulsive sort of way, then I'm kind of an addict, like kind of no matter what I do. So, so when people, people joke sometimes about being like, like a chocolate or something like addicted to chocolate, I mean, we kind of joke about that a little bit, but, but if you think about it and say, okay, um, if I am actually consuming like a whole lot of chocolate, not just because I like chocolate, but because I'm trying to like cope with pain of some sort or, or self-medicate or manage my mood in some way, or because I don't want to face up to something, then yeah, you are using the, essentially the same addictive mechanism as um, this or that addicted person on the street in rehab, 
so. Uh, just a little thing. I, I have actually heard of people that have gone to rehab facilities for chocolate addiction, which sounds absurd at first, but yeah, like after you get into it, like, yeah, I guess I'll make this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And there's a way, um, there, there's definitely a way like disordered eating there. I mean, that's, that's uh, kind of its own special category, but, but it, there, there's some similar components to this too. Um, a person develops a disordered relationship with a thing, uh, an obsessively disordered relationship over a thing, whether it's I need to get too much of this thing or I'm extremely averse to this thing. Um, all of that kind of still works the, the same sort of compulsion. Uh, and, and again, w- w- with food and eating disorders, there are a couple of particulars to consider, and I haven't trained with that, so I'm not going to say too much, but um, but it's, it's very closely connected to, to all of this. Uh, so, so here's a model that's really important to think about. It's the diathesis stress theory. Um, and this is, again, one of those ones that has much more to offer than it doesn't. This model says that uh, genetic and hereditary predisposition interacts with environmental stressors to create a disordered relationship and coping response to the stressor. Uh, what does that mean? So it basically means that um, it's a combination of a person who's primed to be an addicted person meets uh, a substance that is very conducive to be done, being done addictively in like just the right moment of time and environment. And then it's fireworks and it becomes messy. We're also going to talk a little bit more about what are some of the risk factors that create that um, susceptibility. So, so we'll do that next time um, or the time after that. Um, but what we can look at, though, is that if, uh, if a non-vulnerable person meets a trigger, there's a low chance of addiction. If a highly vulnerable person, I didn't type all of this correctly. If a highly, highly vulnerable person meets the, the, the same trigger, there's a high chance of addiction. And we can also say that if a vulnerable person uh, meets even a very small trigger, that there's an addiction. So uh, how this could look is, let's say, okay, let's let's say take, take hypothetical scenario somebody uh goes to a bar on friday night they drink a whole lot of alcohol they they smoke cocaine and they have a hookup uh, so we might say wow that's a very that's a very intense night um and let's say this person's 19 or something uh so we might say that's that, that's a whole lot of things so we, we wonder okay so is that person is that person an addict um or do they have a disorder? Do they have a disordered relationship with these things? Um, and I know mean, we're going to talk about this in a lot more depth when we get to talking about diagnoses and levels of use and everything. But uh, but essentially, we could say for you know there, there's one person who might approach that, having never done anything like that, having not really used a lot of alcohol, having never had cocaine, maybe never having had sex, uh, maybe not having spent much time in the bar scene, and they do that maybe kind of like they, by accident, they get caught up in the moment or maybe kind of intentionally, they're really curious or maybe out of some like rebellion, like they're really angry about something and they just want to do it. Um, and for, for that person, it, that experience would, would mean one thing. Um, and they, and for that person, it might be like a, Hey, I did that. Eh, I didn't really like it. I don't want to go back to it. And, and they, and they don't have to. Um, and for, for some reason, like maybe that person already had, like a good sense of themselves, they have some good coping skills, they have some solid relationships, they have a kind of structured purposeful life. Like they don't need that, uh, that sort of experience to to feel okay in themselves. 
you know, take another person, a person who maybe, let's say they don't have any support structure, they don't have a lot of structure to their life, they don't have a lot of purpose, they have already been using, you know, alcohol, cannabis, porn, uh, they have already smoked cocaine, something, whatever, um, and it's a person who doesn't have a good sense of self, and they've been mostly, like, you know, beaten and bullied and, uh, and emotionally worn down all of their life, uh, so... Uh, for, so for them, you know, would say there's, there's a lot higher risk because, you know, for that person, an experience like this, it's, you know, it's either like damaging enough to be congruent with their self-concept or it's intense enough to say, okay, I've gotten out of my experience if just for a night. And so for, for that person, this experience, um, it has a functional value. It has an emotional load bearing value. And so for that person, there is going to be a lot more vulnerability. Um, because they are more vulnerable. So, or I guess it'd be like, you know, you throw a match into oil, there's a lot of vulnerability. You throw a match into water, not a lot of vulnerability. But like the same trigger happens differently for different people. Oh, that would have been a lot easier. Anyway. <laughs> uh, so the diathesis stress theory requires both a susceptible host and an addictive substance or behavior. Uh, dopamine is a conspicuous component. Uh, this is why nobody really gets addicted to vegetables. Um, again, cause we're, we're looking for, we're looking for that pleasure, that pleasure hormone, and we're looking for the quickest, fastest way to get to it. Because again, thinking about how the brain has evolved, the brain, uh, tags the, the highly dopaminergic experiences as good for survival, because once upon a time they were, when it was like, Hey, let's find like really nutritious foods really fast. Let's find a mating partner pretty effectively. Um, and now there's just a whole lot of things that are not helpful that still give more dopamine that just confuses the system. Uh, the problem of addiction then is the complex interactions between environment, host, and trigger. The solution is one that would address all of the parts and potentially a new system. So referencing back to family systems, um, you know, a, a person might need to just transplant into a whole new environment. Yes, addiction is the result of a set of complex, dynamic, and multi-layered interrelationships between many variables across the lifespan. The person is complex and dynamic. Uh, pros of this approach, uh, definitely some good ones. Uh, this one recognizes the multiple factors and their influences. Um, some of the models up to now, they've had more of a narrow focus, uh, like, like the, the disease model in particular, um, definitely have like a really hyper focus on on brain chemistry and the progressive disease there, and the 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 moral or the criminal model might have a an exaggerated focus on on choice and the person's you know behavior and the way they show up in society. This is the approach that begins to say no, there there's a lot of factors and we need to recognize all of them. Uh, one con one one shortcoming is that this model can can be seen to regard addiction and compulsion as inevitable. Um, you know, you're a vulnerable moral person running into an addictive thing, so of course you're going to addict to it. Um, and there, there can be that feel. And I mean, certainly that often is the pattern. Um, one of the things that makes humans unique among all creatures though, is our capacity to transcend ourselves and to transcend our impulses and work against our influences in a way that is uh, redemptive and beautiful and, and ultimately very, very healing. That uh, takes a lot of work. Uh, some might say it needs divine intervention to be accomplished. But, um, but that that is that is a an aspect of our humanity that could get missed in this one. Uh, and just emphasizing, 
there's all of the factors and all of the risk factors and all of them have confluenced together. So of course you're going to addict. So, and I know this, this one could make some interesting comments about like the inherent nature of a person. Like, are you inherently vulnerable, inherently going to act out or are you inherently something else? Just, and where does that inherent, where does that inherent nature come from? Those are some important questions. Uh, clinical implications here. So like we said, uh, it's not strictly one thing or another. Uh, it's the, it's the diathesis. It's the, it's the attention, the combination, um, of, uh, vulnerable person, stressful situation and, you know, dopaminergic substance altogether, which we've said that a lot of times. Um, and you really need to be able to, to look for all of them and really develop an approach that, uh, that addresses all of them. So that could look like saying, Let's talk about behaviors. Let's talk about how do you think differently. Let's talk about how do you cultivate a different relationship with your body. Let's talk a little bit about how you do conflicts with people. Uh, maybe let's talk about like, are you exercising? Are you eating well? Um, you know, a good course of therapy will will touch on all of those, and and at least bring them up as as important conversations. We will talk about adverse childhood experiences as we go because those are some of the stressors uh, most notable that we need to consider. Spiritual integration, I believe we are called to transcend our nature and our influences. Um, and and two, I mean, especially coming from within the Christian framework, our, our inherent nature is the image of God. And that's that's good. That's in, inherently good. The, uh, the, the, li- the likeness of God gets, gets tarnished and muddied and broken in a whole bunch of ways. But, but, the, but, the, but the image, that, that never changes. So... Uh, uppers, downers, all arounders. Uh, if you're going to do addictions work, this is the this is the textbook that you should all have. Uh, it's more about the drugs and the substances the, than 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 anything. There there's a, a couple good bits about um, like the pleasure reward pathways in the brain and all of that. But there's so much history around um, all of the substances and some of the cultures around them and uh, what they do in your brain and everything. This particular quote. Uh, saying uh, a predisposition or a diathesis to addiction is the result of genetic and iron environmental influences, uh, abuse, drug culture, poor nutrition, media, trauma, etc., which when further stressed by the use of psychoactive drugs or the practice of certain compulsive behaviors, alters neurochemistry, brain function, and even new epigenetic gene expressions to the point that a return to normal behavior is extremely difficult. Uh, so th- this one's bringing out this interesting dynamic uh, that, that, that does happen. So, so when, when we're talking about what is addiction and, and what's going on, uh, we're putting a lot of emphasis on like, like the emotional component and the societal component and the family systems component. And we're going to put a whole lot of emphasis on the, the trauma and attachment component. Uh, there is very much, though, this physical component, which is addressed in the disease model, but, it, but it's this idea that you do something long enough and it starts to shape you. Uh, you do substances long enough that the toxins begin to alter your brain chemistry. You watch porn long enough, it begins to alter your brain chemistry. And you know, even down into your epigenetic structure, um, you know, you cultivate a particular relationship with, with food, with exercise, with, with gambling, with money, with, uh, with any of these things uh, long enough. And it writes, it carves out neuropathways in your brain uh, to where... Um, now it's not just, oh, I had trauma, but now my body is also engaged in this also. And so, um, and that can be, that can be part of why, uh, like an abstinence approach can be useful or sometimes that needs to be a part of it is that like you, you need to give your body a break. You need to give your brain a break. 
um, you know, abstinence on its own is not recovery. Um, but, uh, but, but where that is, is necessary, it's, it's, it's because of this phenomenon that um, the, the, the coping skill I've been reaching for um, has now begun to also affect how my brain works and change the structure of my brain. Uh, so that's a... I feel, like, I feel like even before it starts to alter the chemistry of your brain abstinence, that is, I feel like it can pretty quickly draw attention to the areas of your life that um, you're like, oh, well, I obviously like, I don't have a problem. I just stress eat all the time because I have a stressed out life. And so once you let go of that you know, craving food, once you get on that whole dirty diet, like week one, you're like, wait, I need my crave, you know, I need my comfort food. And then you go, well, why is that? I'm sure it hasn't changed your brain chemistry, but I feel like, um, uh, not speaking from personal experience or anything like that, <laughs> right. but uh, I've heard that um, it can draw attention to those areas of life. You realize that maybe you're not managing as well as you'd like. Yeah, yeah. Once you, once you take out, once you take out, um, the, the explosively unhealthy substance or the, the really unmanageable patterns, you, you do start to see more of what was beneath there to begin with. You feel your emotions more, you notice your relationship patterns more, you have to face up to the damage you've caused more. And, and yeah, the, the, t- the temptation to return to a really easy coping method is really strong. Um, and again, this is happening both on an emotional level as well as on a physical level because they're, and, and that's why this whole science is super, super complex is because there's a lot of things happening at once. You, you develop like an emotional attachment to whatever you're doing and you become physically dependent as well at some point or, or there's the potential for that anyway. Not everybody gets to that level. Uh, and so when you, when you stop a thing and you feel withdrawals, there's going to be both like the physical withdrawals that are usually a little bit shorter, but it's like my, 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 my physical brain is having to readjust to not having the thing in me. Um, and then for a lot longer, there's going to be the emotional withdrawals, the psychological withdrawals, this, uh, like Stephen, what you were talking about, this sense of like, wow, now I have to face an unfiltered version of my reality and wow, it's bright and blaring and kind of ugly. So it's a very, it's a very real thing. So here we are at um, probably the last model we'll cover today, but the, the biopsychosocial model, or what I've sometimes expanded as to be the, the bioso- biopsychosocial spiritual model, just to incorporate more components. Um, what this one says is that the biopsychosocial model of addiction posits that biological, genetic, psychological, and sociocultural factors contribute to substance use and all must be taken into consideration in prevention and treatment efforts. Also that the essence of the model is that the mind and the body are connected and both the mind and the body affect, and I'd say are affected by the development and the progression of addiction within a social and cultural context. So uh, what does that mean? Um, So basically is expanding on the diathesis stress model to say there's a lot of components that, that fit into it. And so this one in particular, it will emphasize um, the, the physical self and what's going on in the body. So here we can think again, genetics, physical health, the brain, um, and, and things going on there. The psychological component, and that's going to be the person's mental health, their emotional health, and um, other factors there. And the, and the social component, and that can be, that could include things like um, the society in which you find yourself, the culture around you, your family system, your primary attachments, all of that together. And it's going to say that 
factors from all of these work together to create uh, this phenomenon uh, that we think of as addiction or, or compulsion. Um, this one is um, one of the one of the one of the better models. Absolutely, uh, this one's also the one that uh, is. Uh, I would say this one and the disease model are the, the the models of choice in a lot of treatment facilities. So, uh, a lot of a lot of facilities will uh, hearken to the disease model and say because of that we're going to have an abstinence based uh, treatment approach and and we're going to think about the brain and we've got to just get in permanent remission from this disease. So that one influences it there. Uh, and a lot of other facilities wanting to value like holistic wraparound care, they're, they're going to recognize, hey, there, there's all of these elements. And so uh, it's very common. You'll, you'll see the term biopsychosocial assessment when, 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 doing, it, when doing addictions work, uh, which is good. And this is a good thing to be, uh, to be ever and always looking at these are all the different components to think about. Uh, so the problem, like we've said, is that there are multiple problems. Addiction is multifaceted, dynamic, and complex, and thus the solution must also be equally complex. There must be, in fact, multiple solutions addressing multiple layers of a person's existence. Um, addiction then becomes the result of the interaction between the physical, the emotional, the biological, genetic, personality, psychological, cognitive, social, cultural, and environmental factors. Can we think of a few more just because? Um, <laughs> so, um, which, which again, I, I, I like this model because it, it does think of all of the things. Um, addiction, it's really complex because it is, uh, it is in the brain. It's also a choice you make and, it, and you, you don't become an addict in a vacuum. You become an addict or an addicted person in the context of a whole lot of things working around you. But then again, like, can you just blame all of that context and say, well, that's why I am who I am and I'm not responsible and I'm a victim, blah, 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 blah. You can't say that because you are also your own person and you also need to take responsibility for your own life. But then you might not have all the, all the resources for that. So you do need to kind of rely on the people around you or the community around you. So it's, it's complex like that. And uh, I think a model like this is good because it um, it allows for the person to be a person and a full person, and it can be good for um, avoiding stigma, I think. Could be. I mean, it depends on delivery, I suppose. I mean, we should be avoiding stigma anyway. So other pros, like we said, this model recognizes the multiple factors and multiple causes and multiple solutions. Uh, it takes a, what I think is a more realistic approach to behavior patterns and to the person, uh, and the addicted person gets to be human. Uh, one con, uh, kind of like with, uh, with family systems, um, this one takes a lot of effort and the, the logistics could be difficult. Uh, it takes a lot more time to do assessment um, because, again, you're not going to, you know, say, say a person's presenting. Uh, well, like what, what happens with, with me a lot is somebody will say, I'm, I'm presenting with, with porn addiction or with, you know, uh, like, like sex addiction or something. And so, so I'll begin to assess that and say, okay, so let's look at just the sexual behaviors. Do those meet criteria for compulsive use? Uh, or is it just unpleasant in some way? From there, uh, if I didn't also look at, are you using substances in some way? That would be irresponsible. But that's like another, another storytelling session to say, hey, what has been your, your what, um, what are your patterns of use now? And how have you used up till now? 
Um, but then, you know, looking at, the, at those, I mean, those happen in the context of, well, what's going on in your life? Like, do you have depression now? Do you have anxiety now? Do you, do you exhibit symptoms of trauma now? Uh, by the way, what's your family system like? Where do you live? Where do you work? Who do you, who do you sleep with? Who do you go to for comfort? Um, uh, and then and all, all of that, though, is happening in the context of where they've been throughout their life. Like, how did you get here? Um, who, who were the parents that you had? What was the family system that you had? What were the things that happened to you? Um, what made it so that you, you would seek out these things as, uh, as surrogate attachment figures? Uh, you know, what, what's that story? And so uh, all of that has to be factored in. And that just takes time. Uh, it takes, <laughs> definitely takes more than 90 minutes. Uh, and it, take, it, would, it would take a couple of sessions and, and a lot of questions. So, which again, should not be a deterrent. It should just be, that's just part of the process is good addiction assessment takes time and it should be done. Uh, one other challenge is that really treating a person caught up in, in active addiction, it takes, uh, it takes a lot more resources. Um, and I mean, it definitely gets some people who they, they want to come in. They want to come in like once a week, once every other week, talk about some stuff with me and, and be fine. And for some people at some levels of use, they're, they're good, maybe even every other week. And, and that, that's kind of all they need. There's other people, though, who, given the level of chaos in their life or the, the depth of trauma they've experienced or just the, the uh, very strongly reinforced nature of their behavior patterns, um, they're, they're going to need more support. They're going to need more contacts. They're going to need um, more than just talk therapy, they're going to need EMDR, they're going to need neurofeedback, they're going to need a nutritionist, they're going to need a walking buddy, somebody who can get them out of the house and moving more often. They're Especially they're going to need community, which is tricky right now during the COVID storm uh, when communities are fractured, and that's very sad. Uh, I mean, I'm thankful for the online communities, but there's something about like you get in a room with a person and like you, you see them, you, you physically experience them accepting you as you pour out your heart to them. And there's, there's no comparison to that. There's no, there's no match for that. And that, that sort of thing is a really essential experience for a person. And so, so yeah, so speaking of that, uh, one, one challenge with, the bio, with really good biopsychosocial assessment is it's difficult to implement on your own. And that speaks to both someone like me who's in uh, private practice uh, as well as to a, a client who they're, they're kind of on their own. They don't have a lot of family support or other friends or anything. There's, there's a limited effectiveness to what we'll be able to do just on our own. Should we still meet? Of course we should still meet. And of course we can still do some good work, but there, there's going to be limited effectiveness without bringing in other, um, other resources. Um, one other challenge, which, I mean, this isn't a deal-breaking challenge at all, but uh, really, a really thorough assessment and treatment. Uh, it will probably include discussions that are out of your primary comfort level. Um, it could mean conversations out of your competency level. Be careful of those because, I mean, if it gets into, like, uh, say, testing for the autism spectrum or testing for ADHD and, and those are a little bit specialized, I mean, refer refer as you need to and, and bring in other people. Um, but, but be ready for that, that there's going to be there's going to be some conversations where the person needs a specialized thing that is a little bit out of your training, which is fine. Just do some referrals, um, or they're going to talk about things that are out of your comfort level. Um, so you know you should be ready to talk in depth about like explicit drug usage and a whole lot of sex and a whole lot of violence and 
a whole lot of like, wow, your parents did what to you? Those sorts of moments. Um, so uh, clinical implications. So when you do, when you do assessments, um, I would say whether or not you're doing specifically addictions work, definitely plan on doing a biopsychosocial assessment. Um, you know, add in a spiritual component, sure. Um, but um, you, you want to, you will, you'll want to be assessing for uh, the mental health symptoms and the addiction systems, and a little bit about family, and a little bit about current current situation. Uh, and you know, I mean, plan on that taking you know at least a couple of sessions if you need to. Um, that's going to be, you know, if you're in an agency setting, the agency is going to complain about it, but they're an agency. They can handle it. <laughs> Just don't get fired. So do consider looking into the, the ACM dimensions. So there's, there's, there's dimensions, there, there's six dimensions. It's, uh, it's like relapse potential, current intoxication, uh, emotional well-being, uh, physical well-being, uh, your, uh, relapse potential and your recovery environment. Um, and you know, those areas. It's um, ASAM is a system of assessment designed to, again, look at all of the major dimensions of a person's life and and see how much risk is there in each individual level. And you kind of average that out and you figure out, hey, what are the best resources? What are the, what resources does this person need? Uh, everything from just like a little bit of an um, intervention education all the way up to, you know, medically monitored you know, inpatient. Uh, so, uh, so I would say, uh, look into that. And, uh, even, even if it's just, um, like if like, again, like in, in my context, I'm in private practice, I wrote my own assessment form. Um, so, so when I assess through, uh, addictions, I, I have like the DSM criteria that I ask through, and then I have a separate section for, uh, here's, here's the, here's the dimensions that ASAM would ask about. And, you know, you write some story in each one of those also, um, you know, that that could be all that you need, um, but 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 altogether, I would say get in the habit of thinking holistically about a person and recognizing there there's a lot of factors acting upon a person, and you need to be looking at all of them. I appreciate that you talk about um, looking at a person holistically. I feel like that uh, that in itself sort of addresses the stigma that you were referring to earlier. You said that there's less stigma in this, and yet it's still about the presentation looking at a person holistically and saying this is a person with a past and a context and everything. This is not an addict. It's a person who has an addiction um, because of all these different environmental factors. And some of it is moral, some of it is choice, uh, but it's so much more than that. So I feel like uh, that seems to me, or it feels like um, a good way to uh, begin addressing that um, stigma before it comes up. Yeah, I I would hope so. And and again, thanks for bringing that up. I I mean, I, I would hope we would be doing this anyway, like looking at the whole person anyway, and not just fixating on like, here's the symptom you have, or here's this behavior you have. Um, and I would say too, I mean, that, that would, it would be a way to talk with the per- with the client too. Um, when a person gets caught up in these behaviors, they, they can begin to over identify with the behaviors too, and say, Oh, this is just me. This is just who I am. I'm just a failure. I'm just an addict. I'm just this or that. And it can be really hard to, uh, like decentralize that in their life. Um, it both, it can be hard to not over decentralize to where they don't take responsibility for it at all. Like that's not good either, but like stepping back from it far enough to say, Hey, this is one aspect of me. There's other aspects. I'm a whole person. I can, and I can move on from this. Um, so, uh, spiritual integration points. Um, 
you know, again, especially within a, you know, a Trinitarian framework, I mean, we see ourselves as being, you know, body, spirit, and soul, um, multiple parts of a person. There, there, there's a physical part, um, an intellectual part, you know, a spiritual part, and uh, all of which are good, all of which are really valuable, all of which become saved, all of which are incorporated into the salvation act uh, for us. Um, but, uh, but they have to be ordered rightly and all growing together. And, and if they're, they're not ordered rightly, if they're out of balance or, uh, you know, the, the wrong element is being uh, emphasized in any given moment, or if they're not all getting attention, then, yeah, the person's going to be, be out of balance and that's going to cause problems. Um, okay, I think that is about an hour for, uh, for this lecture. So we will um, stop the lecture there. Um, any other quick questions or comments around any of this? I was thinking to have to write them down. <laughs> oh, no. I was just going to ask, you know, you talked about um, changing your environment um, to support recovery. And um, what would you say about, like, you know, the, and you talked about homeostasis, right? Any system wants homeostasis, wants equilibrium, it wants to maintain. And, uh, a person who's taking on the, the victim role or the um, the rebel or whatever it is, um, for them to remain in that family system, um, the system wants them to, or is sort of primed for them to still be in that role even after a family sends the rebel on the out, outsider to recovery. Even if the family outwardly, nominally supports recovery, the system is still primed for them to continue in that role and to continue to be um, the addict. Um, and so for a person to recognize that in themselves and say, hey, my system is primed for me to continue to be an addict and my system is not supportive, um, how much time do you give people, um, how do you work with people who are separating themselves from their family? Because that in itself, um, seems like chaotic. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's like, a super good question. Like how much time when a, when a person is trying to recover and, their family is not supportive or only nominally supportive. Like how much time do you give the family to, to join the process before, before leaving or before, uh, sure. the splitting. Yeah. Uh, it's not even family, but like friends, mm -hmm. environmental factors, how much of that do you like try to change and how much do you just like burn it and move on, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I'm thinking, and again, I mean, you know, speaking specifically to, to, to a Christian audience uh, here, uh, you know, we can reference, you know, when, when, when Jesus is first calling his disciples, I mean, he has this, you know, idea of like, you know, if, if anybody's like loving, loving their family more than me, they're like, they're, they're, they're not worthy, worthy of me. Um, and essentially saying, you know, if, if you, um, your family system can be a, an, an inhibitor to, to, to growing spiritually or your, you know, sometimes to, to really, you know, to, <laughs> You sometimes need to leave your family, or, or just definitely speaking to, to the power of the family system to tend to keep you in it, and and again, if that whole system isn't growing, sometimes the answer is to leave or to step away for for a period of time anyway. Um, so, and like, how does that look uh, like like today in the clinic? I mean, obviously, it's very very individual. Um, I mean, my my hope my hope is that relationships can can be preserved. That's not always possible. Um, my hope is that if if a person's going 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 to leave and maybe cut off all contact, that they can do it 
in a, in a peaceable sort of way. Like not in a, I'm angry and I hate you sort of way, but more of a, I love you, but you're not good for me right now. I'll try coming back sometime later. Uh, or when, or when you can make these changes, um, meet my boundaries, then, then we can try this again. Um, that, 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 that would be my hope there. Um, like as far as like how long does a person try to, to be with their family? Um, I don't know. You'd, you'd really have to go with your gut and your intuition there. Um, I mean, give it a try for sure. Um, but that's a good question. We should do a podcast about that one. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so there's, um, there, there's our stuff for today. The, uh, family systems model. Oh, I didn't talk about internal family systems, but that's okay. We'll come back to that at some point. Uh, talked about diathesis, stress theory, biopsychosocial model. Next time we will touch on um, a spiritual model of what it, of how we can understand addictions from a spiritual standpoint. We'll also talk about the trauma dissociation model and the uh, attachment disorder approach to what addictions are as well. Yep, those will be that. And that will conclude our series on uh, theories of addiction. And then we'll talk about addiction interaction. And that's going to be really fun because that way, like everybody comes out an addict. So thanks all for being here and for listening. And I will see you again next time. love your feedback and invite you to share your thoughts about this conversation. Also, we'd appreciate your review and five-star rating on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Share your thoughts through email at smartcouncilpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us at facebook.com slash smartcouncilpodcast. Please consider supporting this podcast with a financial donation through patreon.com slash smartcouncil. Our theme music is by Trent Price. Our logo design is by Thomas Moore. Thanks again for listening, and let's keep the conversation going. Music